Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale November 27, 2019. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, Tucker! Hey, smart sweater. Oh, hey, thanks. Mark Buckwhite's our friend and colleague here, keeps calling me Wiki, as in the, like, old-timey sea dog name that Willem Dafoe's character constantly calls Robert Pattinson's character in the lighthouse because it's kind of vaguely nautical. You put a peat coat <laughs> over that? Yeah. You put on a hat? Yeah. You are heading out to the lighthouse. Grow out a mustache. Yep. Go insane. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I watched a second film that I've been able to watch since the baby came. Yeah. We watched Fantasia because I wanted oh, something. I wanted to put on some classical music and I was like, oh, we have Disney Plus. Yeah. I haven't seen Fantasia in a long time. It's really nice. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, that's really great. Good. Speaking of Disney Plus, have you gotten to watch any of The Mandalorian? Oh, yeah. I am okay. up to date for okay. when we were recording. It is magic. Whoa. Yeah. So I, I was I was planning on holding it off until like at least most of it was out, but then I started seeing too many spoilers. I was like, all right, I just got to jump yeah, in. You got to roll in. It's badass. Oh, so good. It's really, really awesome. So it, it's also fun because everybody was like, the big spoiler, cute thing. Yes, cute yes, thing. La, yes. la, la, la. Like, that's the cutest thing. And then on the video game side, people were like, Oh my God, BD1 is the cutest <laughs> thing in Star Wars. So I have these two competing factions, yeah, Star yeah. Wars <laughs> fandom, yelling at each other and like the world of the cutest thing happening in respective yeah. things. And so having played like two hours of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, it's tough. <laughs> wow. BD1, there's a moment <laughs> where it gets hurt early on when you first like uh-huh. encounter the droid. And I was like, Oh no! Yeah. Oh, I, I felt something. Wow! It's great. It's really, really great. That game is <laughs> nice. tough. But that's not what we're here to do. We're here to talk about all the new comics that are out this week from the House of Ideas. A lot of cool stuff to talk about. We're gonna go through the single issues, then the collections and stuff hitting Marvel Unlimited. I'll go first with Avengers number twenty-seven. Jason and Ed back together for the first time in a couple of issues. Makes me really happy as writer and artist. And you have inks by Mark Morales, colors by Jason Keith, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. This one is again bringing Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis back together, and they are here for a trip to Sleazoidville. <laughs> Sleezoids are what the brood are commonly called, and there's a brood infestation happening, and it is bad news. If you don't know the brood, they are xenomorphic-type creatures. They can talk. They can sort of infect people to take over. So if a brood took over Tucker, it would be this monstrous entity wearing this really great sweater, (laughs) and he would act a little bit like Tucker, but more like, I got to infect more people and become more sleazoids. Right. (laughs) Pretty like on brand for you. Yeah. So the Avengers get this call. Like, we got to go. We got to help because Captain Marvel has not been heard from in a little while. Boom, boom, boom. They go out to space. They get stuck. And so you get this really cool twist of horror in the middle of big superhero Avengers action. I love Jason in the way he can do that. He can just take... Earth's Mightiest Heroes, put them into space, turn it into a uh, claustrophobic horror story, mm-hmm. monsters, nightmares. And then the last page, oh boy, you get uh, a guy soaring at them at yeah. high speeds. And if you are up on your Marvel cosmic stuff, it makes it even better. You don't mm-hmm. have to be, but if you've been reading various other cosmic titles, you'll be like, oh, this is all kind of really cool fitting together, yeah. which I really, really dug. Yeah. 
Okay, my first book this week is Black Panther number 18. It's by Ta-Nehisi Coates and Chris Sprouse, uh, with inks by Carl Story, colors by Marcio Meniz, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This is a really fascinating issue because it feels like a huge turning point for this series. Obviously, we have the Intergalactic Empire of Wakanda, and for each book, it's kind of interesting how this story begins because for each book, we have a page of very concise four or five panels tells the story of how Wakanda spread across the galaxy, what the new status quo is, just to catch you up. It's the same thing for every single issue. With this one, it's really interesting because it starts with a conversation in Wakanda Prime between T'Challa and Aurora, and they're talking about the challenges that T'Challa's facing, that Wakanda's facing, and the issue maybe at hand for the very existence of the intergalactic empire of Wakanda. And then I really liked how they f- they use those panels then in the story. They flash back to those panels with commentary over them, with different captions over them than we've ever seen before, where it kind of puts things in context. It puts things in T'Challa's voice, but it reframes them in a really big way. And it's really, really interesting. The whole issue kind of takes place in between this conversation between Black Panther and Storm and seeing these characters relate Obviously, they have such a history together. Seeing Aurora talk about like her first trip to America, her like trip to like Harlem and and New York, and how that's relevant to the story, and all of these different things. That's like a Tanahasi yes, moment right there. I was exactly. Like, oh, damn. Say, yes. I, I, I was so excited to see that little character moment dropped in. It, it's really really fascinating to see how these characters relate. And look, it's a huge task. Something like that taking two of like the strongest, wisest, seen-it-all characters and putting them in a couple of different rooms and having them have this very kind of profound existential conversation about Wakanda, about the nature of Wakanda, about what it is, what it needs to be, and everything that they've come up against recently. It's really, really interesting. I would do anything for just a book where it's just like ta Coates is writing really challenging fascinating deeply held like we said just before like this like deeply rooted in the marvel universe in terms of its logic in terms of its reference points in terms of all these things i would do anything just to read a book that's just that that's just people talking about these these big issues and literally nothing else obviously we have a ton of other things in this issue which is so fascinating but this is such a great way i think to ground everything that's to come yeah just tying it to the beginning of this run and how everything came together for me felt so satisfying agreed All right, on to Conan the Barbarian 2099. What? That's right, Conan 2099. Number one is part of our 2099 series of one-shots. This is written by Jerry Duggan, art by Jose Antonio, with colors by Eric Arciniega, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. And this one, yes, it is Conan in 2099. So it's cool. He's got a laser sword. He's got a friggin' Nova helmet. That is a huge part of the story. And like how this all comes together is sort of the, the reason for the story and seeing that and how it ties into Conan's hatred of sorcery and the end of the age of heroes and all this other stuff is super cool. But just to see Conan in like the future fighting robots and, and then the gnarly like public eye police dudes. Yeah. It's great. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm really excited to keep digging into these 2099 books. We have one a little bit later that I really love, but it's just great to revisit that landscape. It's so, so cool. My next book is Fallen Angels. Number two, we're going back to the dawn of X here. 
with the first of three Dawn of X books this week, and this is written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Kadransky, colors by Frank D'Armada, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. I don't know if I just noticed this for the first time, but in the credits, Jonathan Hickman's title for each of the Dawn of X books is Head of X. Oh, yeah? Yeah, which I just love. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I hope he has a T-shirt that says Head, head of, of X. X. Yeah. I don't think he wears any T-shirt with anything right. on it. Right. Like, that would be a complete <laughs> anti-Hickman yes. move. Yeah, which I just, I only noticed for the first time recently, and I just, it just makes me laugh every time. It's, it brings me great joy. This issue and Fallen Angels as a whole has been a really, really fascinating study of the darker side of the Dawn of X. It's really, really uh, interesting thing because we have X-Force, which I, I think in a way could be described similarly. But this to me is about the kind of more emotionally dark side of things. And I think obviously there's huge action in here all brought to life beautifully by Simon Kadransky and he is the perfect artist to do so you know we talked about the head of x Jonathan Hickman you know he helped hand pick each of the creators on each of these Dawn of X books so you know that he took a look at Simon's work alongside Matt Rosenberg and Punisher and was like that I want that look that feels totally appropriate for what Fallen Angels is going to be and so to dig into Quanon and her backstory, everything that she's bringing to the table here is completely different for me than every other Dawn of X book in so many different ways. Like I said, that's realized visually, but to see the fallout of the new status quo, to see how that repositions things, obviously in the present and moving into the future, but it also repositions you know, like I mentioned, things in a mental way for the mutants. And certainly for a character like Quanon, who has so much history here. There's so, so much depth to this book. I think this is going to be absolutely like a dark horse contender for one of my favorite X books. It's occupies such an interesting liminal space, a, a space that is neither like the celebratory, like front-facing government world of Krakoa and the mutants, and it's neither the kind of underground side that X-Force or I guess Marauders occupies in a way. It's it's kind of all at once. It's in between. It's in the shadows. It's all done in super, super character specifics, which I just love. Huge fan of Brian Hill and can't wait to see where this is going. Heck yeah. All right, up next is my... First pick of the week, it is Fantastic Four Grand Design, issue number two. Super bummed that this is the last issue of the two-issue limited series, but it is like 48 pages long. It is massive. It is huge. I finished the issue, and I immediately emailed the editor, Chris Robinson, and I was like, Chris, this issue is bonkers. The story is wild. I love it so much. Congratulations on such a good comic. Yeah, Chris is like... It's been a big year for Chris, and he's crushed it. He's been doing some great work, and this one is written, drawn, colored, designed, all of this by Tom Scioli. So, of course, much of this goes to Tom, but you know, we know Chris worked on the X-Men Grand Design. He worked on this Grand Design. There's something to that. That's the importance of having a great editor. So definitely wanted to shout Chris out. So the first issue sort of followed the Fantastic Four history pretty closely, getting to the point of the Galactus arrival. And there's a little, a couple things. And then this issue, I was reading it and I was like, cool, I just want to see how they take this history and tell it. And the first page, the first story page, 19 panels. (laughs) Yeah. Just counted them. Yeah, Yeah. 19 panels. And some of these are pulled directly from FF number 48 because I've read that issue so many times. It has one of my favorite panels where favorite sequences where there's this 
dude who's angry at the thing, and he says, uh, "How's about a belt in the labanza to the thing?" And then he punches the guy. He punches the thing, and and it's like, "Ow, my knuckles!" And then the thing's like, "Is it my turn yet?" And he like does this little like flicky finger move. Yeah, yeah. And so I read this, and I'm reading this as Tom does it. I'm like, "Okay, cool. It's we're we're following this." And then it starts to slowly veer. And little things, I'm like, but that's not what happened. I'm very confused. What is going on? And I didn't realize that it wasn't a retelling. It is a different telling. It is a, an alternate path. And like X-Men Grand Design, it finds a way to fold back in on itself to get you back to where we were at the beginning or at a certain point where it, it folds this alternative aspect into what we know as the Marvel Universe canon in such a cool way. But we go through the Galactus affair and, you know, you have Silver Surfer. And just when Tom gets to go wild and take up a quarter of a page with one panel, yeah, yeah. which is, for him, a massive amount of real estate. I'm looking at this one panel where he's drawn Galactus's ship. And if you remember the way Kirby draws it in those, it's, it's either 49 or 50 of Fantastic Four, it's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. It is MC Escher S Kirby wild beautiful stuff and Tom does it in this quarter page and it's just magnificent it blows the doors off of everything and you go down this path and it gets really weird and he's like having this hallucination Johnny Storm is in Galactus's ship and it's it's just kind of like kinky and fun mm-hmm. and fresh and then really things start rolling and it goes into all these different directions and you got Namor involved. You got the negative zone. You've got love and loss and black Panther and all these different stories, eventually bringing it to a point where you're like years into the future and everything is absolutely so far off of what we know. And it's so much fun and it is heartbreaking and sad and a little disturbing. You've got these beautiful moments of, death and rebirth and separation and anxiety just a really beautiful way to tell a story about not just the fantastic four but the marvel universe and the marvel age if you've never read one of these grand designs you can come in in this issue on its own read it as i said it's a massive massive issue and it is beautiful there will be a treasury sized edition available next year which honestly it's the best way to read it. Yeah. I, if you're if you're not getting this one, hold off. Get the treasury that covers both the issues. I promise you, it's going to be worth your money. Yeah, completely. So much good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but there are still even more Fantastic Four Ooh. this week with Fantastic Four Negative Zone number one. This one has two stories. I do want to give a shout out to uh, This Week in Marvel. We just did, I think, the most recent episode is our Anthony Daniels interview episode, which is super fun. But also we do a Negative Zone deep dive. Lorraine and I talk about what the Negative Zone is, the major players. We talk about some important storylines, and we connect it to this in a bunch of ways. So if you are like, I need more info about the Negative Zone, listen to the most recent This Week in Marvel. I believe it's episode number 420. And uh, then come back to this one. The first story is called Ethical Dilemmas in Modern Science, written by Mike Carey with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Eric Arseniega. This one was awesome. It sort of takes this idea of Reed Richards being the scientist, the explorer, the experimenter. He had done something in the negative zone years ago. And now the fruits of what he has essentially planted, they're blooming and they're, they're coming and he's got to deal with it because it is not great. 
and he has to deal with the repercussions of messing around and experimenting and letting things go. And you get little bits of a nihilist action. You get cool aspects of just what the negative zone is in here. But it also tells the story about truly ethics and moral dilemmas and, and science and all this stuff in a big, fun superhero sci-fi adventure. It plays with a really interesting aspect of Reed Richards that I love, which is this kind of darker side of him, which is like this super ambitious scientist who, at times, exactly as it says, can like go off the rails a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the first time we see the negative zone is just because Reed's like, oh, I want to explore. I'm going to make right. this giant machine and I'm going to go in there. Who knows what's going to happen? Everybody else is like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You, ah, and then he just goes and you're like, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, that's Reed. Uh, then there's a second story, which is called What Are the Fantastics For? The Fantastics, F-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-X, mm. and then four F-O-R with a question mark. <laughs> this is written by Ryan North with art by Steve Oy. And this one, so much fun. The Fantastics, if you remember, were the squatters in the Baxter building. They were pretending to be a Fantastic Four. They were trying to be superheroes at the beginning of Dan Slott's run on FF. And it didn't work out for them because the Fantastic <laughs> Four came. But Reed was like, you know what? Fine. You keep the building. We don't need the building. Just do good or else you'll hear from us again. And so this follows up on that, which is really great. If you like Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, you're going to like this story. Yeah. It, it has that Ryan North, humorous, moral, exciting, positive, big, fun superhero vibe, but with you know these kind of third-rate Fantastic Four knockoff characters, and they know it, and they play into it, and it... It's a big, it's a hoot. It's a lot of fun. It makes me go, I would like a Fantastic right. series. Right. I yeah. guess so. Yeah, yeah. Now that Unbeatable Squirrel Girl has wrapped up, it's like that fun kind of comics question where Ryan North is working on Spider-Verse right now, which is so perfect for him. But then it's just like, I'm constantly like, oh man, what's he going to do next? Because I love him so much. Okay, next I want up. him to take a, like a dark turn. Yeah, like to, right? just to do a horror book with no jokes, yeah. nothing. And we see the depths of depravity yeah, that yeah, Ryan yeah, yeah. North can get to. And I, you know what? I don't know if it's in him. I'm sure it's in him because he's wow. an amazing creator. But yes. at the same time, like I just think of him as pure joy. Yeah. My next book is Ghost Spider, number four, which is written by Shauna McGuire with... Art by Takeshi Miyazawa, inks by Rosie Campy, colors by Ian Herring, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. I've said it before, but, you know, just reading the credits there, I always love to shout out Ian Herring because, for me, he's contributed so much to some of the most visually specific books across all of Marvel, obviously thinking of everything Kamala Khan over the past few years and definitely bringing it here. I love the Technicolor kind of neon color palette that is so signature to Ghost Spider. We're dealing with the Jackal here. Obviously, we're jumping between Earth-65 and the 616 as Gwen lives her superhero life. She goes to Empire State University. She's rocking out with the Mary Janes. But to see all that wrapped in with, one, I think there's a really excellent fight scene in this issue that kind of takes place as Gwen is being the most spider hero -y in such a classic way. And then we have something kind of more sinister at play. We have something as we continue on with this Jackal storyline and follow those threads to see the kind of creeping presence of that villain in this storyline. It's really, really interesting. I think it's it's building to something big. It is uncomfortable. Yeah. Like the Jackal is an uncomfortable stalkery presence. And I think it's a great it's a great story idea. Mm-hmm. 
it like creeps yeah, my skin out, yeah, yeah. which is what he should be doing. Yes. All right. Up next is Invisible Woman number five, written by Mark Wade, art by Matteo Deus, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This one is the conclusion to this limited series. And it's really cool because it puts Sue Storm in a very difficult position and like one in which she has to make a choice that could and probably will go against her moral code. It's not that she has to think about, ooh, should she kill or should she not? It is she has to hold herself back. Mm -hmm. She can do pretty much anything. She is the most powerful member of the Fantastic Four. Every moment for her is dangerous. It is difficult. And if she doesn't think about what she's doing, she could take this horrible turn. She's like, the best. I, I love this book, and it is gorgeous. Mateo has been crushing it Insane. from the Jessica Jones stuff to now this. I hope we never let him leave. Yeah, seriously. Next up is my first pick of the week. It is Ironheart number 12. It's written by Eve L. Ewing with art by Luciano Vecchio, layouts by Geofo, colors by Matt Mila, and letters in production by VCs Clayton Cowles. We built to a, a big moment at the end of last issue where seemingly... We met up with kind of a heel turn slash reveal of uh, Riri's dad. This issue begins with Riri tears in her eyes saying, I'm your daughter. And this man replying right before he tries to smash her with a giant boulder saying, I don't have a daughter. And that's where we leap off from. It's really, really interesting. Obviously, she's teamed up with a bunch of Wakanda characters, which I just love. I love that dynamic. And then what makes this issue so special to me and why I picked it this week is because it contains so many jumps back in Riri's life, so many little flashbacks, so many emotional moments that for me just hit so, so hard. And I think it, it really, really speaks to the power of Eve's writing because we have some quieter moments mixed right in with super suspenseful, super, you know, action-packed superhero moments. And it all flows so beautifully. We see Riri reacting to it. She's kind of in this ether. She's kind of reacting to these things, almost seeing them as we see them, as this story is told, as we get flashes of Riri growing up and her relationships growing up and family members and how she became the person she is today. It is such a roller coaster ride between these happy moments, between these some like devastating moments. And that for me is as riveting as any action sequence that I could see. And then once we finally get the moment where she bursts out of that, it is epic and awesome and just absolutely chilling in the coolest, coolest ways. This is such a fascinating issue for me. It like answered a bunch of questions, but it also pose just as many questions it's really really special i think it encapsulates the heart of this character in a big way why this character is so special why there is such a real emotional core to riri williams you know tapping into that isn't necessarily difficult because it's such a rich character but harnessing that can be so tricky and that's absolutely what happens here for me one of the most emotional riri williams stories that i've ever read and I was just absolutely in love with it. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, so, so excellent. Yeah. All right, up next is New Mutants number two, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Rod Reese, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, and designed by Tom Muller and Jonathan Hickman. And of course, as we've noted, head of X, Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> now I'm going to be looking for it every time. Yeah. It's so fun. This one, 
maybe the funniest of all the Dawn of X books. Yeah. I was laughing out loud. I was like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. Like the term space lawyer. Yeah. Thrown out a lot. <laughs> space jail, the name of the issue. You know what? And all this comes together because this is my second pick of the week. New Mutants number two. Just such a blast. Rod's art is a hoot. It is that mix of Bill Sienkiewicz meets Phil Noto meets, you know, just like cool, splashy superhero aspects in there. And then you got like the space lawyer looks like a giant human sized chameleon (laughs) and is kind of a dink. He's a terrible space lawyer in space jail. The team is dealing with crimes that they've committed. They got into a run in with the star jammers in the first issue, which got them, you know, basically arrested all because they're trying to get to space, find their friend cannonball and bring him home to Krakoa. Well, this issue, Cannonball finds them. But it's done in such a heartwarming, sweet, comical, like just joyful way that made me love it top to bottom. Then you also get wonderful, you know, like the, I don't know what we call these, the text pages. Yeah. But each issue in Dawn of X and House of X and Powers of Ten, they have these text pages which add a bunch to the story. But there's the criminal proceedings document for the New Mutants is in here or Shi'ar Imperial Advisors, which gives you a little bit of information on exactly what the Shi'ar, you know, squadrons are all about. And then we see how this Dawn of X isn't replacing the things that, have come before. I mm-hmm. think that's another important thing to remind people. We get into, in this issue, if you guys remember, Mr. and Mrs. X sort of introduced a new character for the Shi'ar, the daughter of Professor X and the Magistrix Lilandra. And so she is actually brought back in this issue. And it ties into that story. It ties into Gladiator being the head of the Shi'ar and him being like, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm a big, strong dude. I just want to (laughs) punch things and blast them. And then it brings it all together with the New Mutants having to get involved as part of their sentence to help tie things together and introduction of the end of the issue to a very important character for Shi'ar, X-Men storylines, for Zandra. And it ends with a really funny beat with Cannonball and Bobby. It is just, you had Fallen Angels that you talked about. Mm -hmm. And it is a, very intense, character-driven, dark, like, uh, stomach in knots, horrible thing, limbs being chopped off. This is your, like, group of 10 best friends going on a road trip, having a great time, getting into trouble, getting messed up, having jokes, and just growing up together. And it is tremendous. Yeah, well said. Next book this week is Punisher 2099, number one. It's written by Lonnie Nadler and Zach Thompson with art by Matt Horak with Owen Marin, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. I alluded to this issue a little bit earlier in getting to explore the landscape of 2099. We're in this issue, really on the streets of Nueva York. It's exactly what you would expect with a Punisher 2099 story in that way. But I love the opportunities and the little one-second detours that Lonnie and Zach take to flesh out the world, to say, here's a new bit of tech that impacts the story, impacts the reality of policing in 2099 in this case, or how 
Frank Castle is dealing with like all these issues. It's really, really, really fun. And for me, somehow captures the spirit of a Frank Castle Punisher book while kind of decorating it and making it live in such a different place and in a place that, you know, we're not as familiar as seeing him in. It's all tied in, like I said, to the tech and the reality of the world. And ultimately what we get is Frank Castle throwing down with a bunch of dudes on the New York or Nueva York streets. And it's everything you could ask for from a Punisher book, from a 2099 book. And just knowing how much Zach and Lonnie love sci-fi, are influenced and inspired by science fiction and all these ideas and digging into them, it adds so much more. Well said. All right, up next is a new launch. It is Scream Curse of Carnage, number one, written by Clay McLeod Chapman, art by Chris Mooneyham, colors by Rain Barreto, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. So this follows the events of Absolute Carnage, where Andy Benton, who was previously Mania, she now has the Scream symbiote. Scream was one of the few symbiotes not absorbed by Carnage or Venom, so she's sort of on her own. She still is dealing with... All the chaos and just terrible things that she's been handed to in life. You know, like we get into her family situation growing up and, the, you know, a lot of the sadness in there. Like I was like, oh, man, what a bum this, rap this, this, this book is had. intense. This book is intense. <laughs> and it, like the second page has this horrible, horrible image of a woman who has like fish and sea creatures coming mm-hmm. out of her. And like the two detectives who found her said that the fisherman who originally found her said she was still alive when he pulled her out, still moving. All the fishy bits were squirming about. I hate that. Yeah, yeah. I hate that so much. <laughs> it's so gross. Great job, Clay, for like <laughs> twisting my insides. Uh, so we've got this cool, weird fishy villain thing going on we've got andy's drama going on her trying to figure out who she is what she is not wanting to be connected to scream yeah. so you have this push and this pull going on it's really really neat it's a very dark book yeah yeah agreed next up we have star wars dr afra number 39 and this is written by simon spurrier with art by casper wingard Colors by Lee Loveridge and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is the penultimate issue of this run of Dr. Afra. Obviously, we will see Dr. Afra back with a new run starting in 2020. But as Simon brings us towards the end of his run with the character, it has been quite a journey. And it kind of feels like the logical end for this character because essentially, and, and this is pretty much the like perfect encapsulation of... Dr. Afra's entire journey as a character, which is just being like chased into a corner and then somehow, some way, finding her way out and finding her way to the next planet or to the next adventure, but just always barely by the skin of her teeth, always being pursued right at the heels by the Empire or a thousand other bounty hunters or villains or other characters. So taking that into account and knowing that we're heading towards the end of this run, knowing that Afra is going to meet up on Hoth with Han and Luke and Leia and everyone in Star Wars Empire Ascendant, number one, knowing that that's all there, that's all on the table, seeing how this issue plays out and specifically seeing how the relationship of Magna Tolvin and the Imperial former Imperial officer and Dr. Afra continues to evolve, continues to change, is exactly what I want from an Afra story. McClunky. McClunky. 
Uh, all right, let us move on to Valkyrie Jane Foster, issue number five, written by Al Ewing and Jason Aaron, art by Kafu, colors by Jesus Arpertov, with letters in production by VCs Joe Sabino. Man, I love this book. This is one of those books I think I'm putting up there and saying, like, if I don't pick it, just understand that yeah. I would pick it. Yeah. Like, it is, like, Runaways, Valkyrie, a couple of other books, uh, Immortal Hulk, like, mm-hmm. even on the weeks I don't pick it, it is a book that I say you have to be reading. Yeah. How do you not read this book? It is awesome. We've seen the last couple of issues. Grim Reaper has shown up. He's in the employ of Mephisto. Mephisto's like, uh, do some bad stuff for me and I'll make <laughs> you uh, like, you know, a, a Valkyrie type guy. Yeah. Uh, Grim Reaper's like, I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm evil. Uh, sure. Whatever. And he goes and he is trying to take Doctor Strange's soul to the afterlife. He's actually trying to go through this and get this like thing, this carrot that Mephisto is dangling after him. Valkyrie's like, this is my job. This is what I do. And so you have the two of them at loggerheads and it actually works really well. The entire team does great work to show Grim Reaper as a credible threat, as a very dangerous dark mirror version of Valkyrie. He even has an evil flying talking horse. Leads to some of my favorite stuff in all comics this week, where Mr. Horse, of course, Mr. Horse is the talking horse with the Northern English dialect who lives with Jane Foster, who is a just a good, tough, working, flying horse. He sees this other horse and does not like it. Uh, he says, <laughs> God, I, oh, man. The, Mr. Horse says, let's uh, chat, eh? Thee and me. One worker to another, like, I'm not doing a good accent here. <laughs> Does that like apples? That's what Mr. Horse says. The other horse says, apples? Well, I've never really. <laughs> Mr. Horse slams it in the, the neck and says, they like them apples, eh, bloody scab. <laughs> and like just yelling at the other horse to the point where the evil horse is yelling, help, police. <laughs> it is police. a really funny, brilliant moment with one of my favorite new characters in the book, all the while, you have Grim Reaper and you have Valkyrie having this bloody, horrible fight. You have these characters who are tied to Jane Foster and her world in different ways come together. And the way this is resolved, I remember hearing about this in one of the creative retreats, a sort of way that this part of the storyline was going to come to a close. And it is so much better than the like explanations that Al and Jason had given in the creative retreat. It's so fulfilling and it is smart and funny and i feel like there's so much meat on the bone for what that does for these characters this is such a great five issue intro to jane foster as this character i really 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 hope everybody is reading this book hands down one of my favorites totally next up we have venom number 20 this is written by donnie cates with art by ivan coelho and zay carlos colors by rain barreto and letters by vcs clayton cowles this is an absolute carnage tie-in yes absolute carnage did wrap up last week with absolute carnage number five but this is kind of the a denouement to the story uh, we see the fallout of everything that's happened there and you know if you're a venom reader and you really should be uh this is kind of the closing point for a massive chapter in what is going to be the legacy and history of this book, a book that I think in Venom fandom and in comics is a huge hit. So knowing, you know, for us, knowing a little bit about where it's headed, 
this is the the end of of chapter one and kind of in a, in a way. So to see Eddie and to see Dylan Brock, to see them relate on everything that they've just been through, the revelations that they've had, including Dylan's revelation that Eddie is not his brother, that Eddie is his dad, is so emotional. It's worthy of the kind of the narrative weight that it's given and it really, really hits home. And then we have a bunch of really fascinating stuff going on with the maker, which combined with everything that's going on with Eddie and Dylan, combined with everything that, you know, as things resonate across the the world in the aftermath of Absolute Carnage makes this really complex, beautiful, jam-packed issue full of a bunch of different things. And yeah, another great one. Next up is Venom Island. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope that these Absolute Carnage tie-in issues of Venom skyrocket Ivan Coelho in, I know. into like everybody's like Oh, this is this is my new favorite. Artist. Yeah, he's, he's so crazy. Good. So good. Yeah. So good. So good. All right. Last book for me is X-Force number two, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Joshua Kassara, colors by Dean White, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And then you got your design by Tom Muller. And it's a humdinger. Yeah. And that's why it's my second pick of the week. This uh, Wait, yes. Tucker. Yes. What does Mr. Benjamin Percy say this book is? This book is poison. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. That <laughs> I is a want very... every opportunity to do the Ben Percy impression. Very good impression. I because I love that dude's voice. He did like an Ask Marvel that I've watched like twenty times because I just it's like every time you hear his voice again, you're like in disbelief that that's what he actually sounds like. He could literally be Wolverine. Anyway, speaking of Wolverine, this issue really brings him to the forefront of the Dawn of X action in a way that obviously he was up. Uh, through certain big moments in House of X and Powers of Ten, and now he's kind of back in the spotlight. The Dawn of X is reeling after a major, major event. At what point should we be able to talk about that? We give it a little bit more room, yeah. but like, seriously, if you don't know what happened <laughs> in X-Force number one and you haven't been spoiled yet, go read X-Force number one, y'all. It's so excellent, and this book continues to be one of my favorites because... As described by Ben Percy, you have the kind of mind and you have the fist, and that is the makeup of X-Force. This issue has Hank McCoy at the heart of it in such a fascinating way. He plays such a crucial element of this team. He is, of course, the brains of X-Force in a big way. He leads that side of the team. And then you have Wolverine, who is obviously the maybe the claws of the team. To see those characters in this gauntlet, tested by the status quo, and then the immediate upsetting of that status quo and having to respond on a global scale. You know, I think this team was billed as like, I believe the the tagline was like, you know, maybe one day, you know, the mutants wouldn't need the X-Force or this kind of like CIA black ops team. Maybe one day they won't need that, but that day is not today. And that is a perfect teasery way to pitch this book. To see that in action now is just so much fun fun you know jonathan hickman has a very particular cadence to the way his characters talk and to the way that there are kind of captions or characters are speaking over scenes that they're they themselves are not necessarily in things like that so to see ben percy kind of playing on that level is quite a sight to behold he's quickly become one of my favorite writers around and also huge shout out to the art in this book which is just gorgeous it is so stunning can't say enough about this book one of my faves and if you like quentin choir yep he's all over this one Kid omega yeah yeah 
Okay, I'm wrapping up this week with Yondu number two. It's by our friends, the aforementioned Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler, with art by John McRae, colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. We talked about The Mandalorian at the top of the show. I have a huge, huge love for Westerns. They're my favorite genre. If I could only read, write, watch one genre of any novel, movie, anything for the rest of my life, it would be Westerns. A million percent. I have such, such a love for that kind of piece of like Americana or that kind of story. And this for me is, and Zach and Lonnie have said it a bunch themselves, is kind of like this dirty space Western in very, very specific Yandu tone of voice and way of seeing the world and way of interacting with a bunch of characters, some of which I was totally shocked to see pop up in this issue. And of course, that includes himself. We have the kind of classic very first iteration of the Guardians of the Galaxy, like whatever it was, 1968 or something like that, Guardians. And then we have the the more modern take on the character to see both of them going on their own misadventures, I guess, in a lot of ways, is so much fun. They're kind of, it's this gritty take on everything. And of course, John McRae then is the perfect one to realize that visually. It's not scratchy. But it's, 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 you know, it's really fine detail work that you really can just dive into. There's so much texture to everything that he does, and that just works perfectly with this kind of story. Huge fan of everything going on in the world of value right now. Okay, that's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. Collections on sale this week include Adventures of Spider-Man Radioactive, Avengers by Jason Aaron, Volume 4, Fearless... Modoc head trips. Okay. Okay. Let me just say yeah. real quick. Yeah. Everybody needs to go buy this. It is twenty bucks. It is jam packed. It is four hundred and fifty two pages wow. of Modoc stories. I had someone on Twitter ask me for a Modoc reading list in MU, and I said, "Hey, me and Jordan Blum are going to put that together for you in some time." But this is kind of like m- most of it. Yeah. Really, it's like twenty <laughs> issues in here. You get. Classic stuff, supervillain team up, Modoc's Eleven. You get Modoc Assassin, some old Tales of Suspense stuff with his first appearance. It is jam packed. It is really, really great. It's only twenty bucks. Nice. We also have Marvel Visionaries, Chris Claremont, Ms. Marvel team up, Thanos Zero Sanctuary, and X Men Classic: The Complete Collection Volume Two. And of course, we have plenty on Marvel Unlimited. There's issues of Mr. and Mrs. X and Runaways in here. Both books we talked about in this episode. Galaxy's Edge number two, which is really cool. Like watching The Mandalorian. And I was like, oh, that looks like Galaxy's Edge. It looks really, really similar to that. It's neat. There's a Jabba the Hutt, Age of Rebellion, Star Wars issue, plenty of War of the Realms. And then in the classic stuff, there is an Xavier Institute alumni yearbook. It's like from 1996. It's so weird. I love this. It's like a handbook meets like actual yearbooky type thing. There's plenty of other books. We'll, we'll list them all. But I also want to point out Captain Britain number one, number two from 1976. Get that good old stuff in there. <laughs> Just drink it up, Tucker. Uh, we'll put to all those lists for you. I think we're listing them in the show notes. Yeah. Big thanks to Jorge and the team for making that work. Speaking of Jorge and the team, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by MR Daniel with help from Jorge Estrada. Our audio development manager is Lauren Wiener. Jill DeBuff is our director of audio. Head of A. UDIO. <laughs> you got me, Tucker. Yeah. You broke me at the end of the day. 
Uh, yeah. That has been Marvel's Polis. I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Roar Universe.